0: Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Join us for this final season as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, explore how we relate to water in its natural state. This season, we bring you conversations about community, wildlife, and recreation. We also speak with two members of the Miami Nation who help us understand the relationship the Native peoples cultivated with water. In this episode, we're talking about the history of development around central Indiana waterways and what is special about living next to the water today. We talk with historians Jordan Ryan and Ed Prijawa, and Rick Crocker, a political consultant and water advocate. We discuss the way people have used our waterways since the settlement of the area and what attracts people to them today. First, let's meet Taz and Devitt. Hi, I'm Taz Walters,
1: one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water.
2: And I'm Devon Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered.
0: Our first conversation is with Jordan Ryan and Ed Pujala. Jordan is an architectural historian and archivist who operates their own consulting firm, the History Concierge. Ed is a lawyer and local historian. Jordan and Ed talk about the way geography shaped early settlement along waterways how the forces of industrialization, transportation, and segregation impacted that relationship and what we can expect in the future.
3: My name is Ed Fujawa. I'm an attorney here locally, and I'm also a kind of a local historian, which is something I've started up in the past several years. So.
4: I'm Jordan Ryan. I'm an architectural historian and archivist. I work for myself under the firm The History Concierge, and I do lots of built environment and landscape history and research. Can you tell us what got you into the river history?
3: Well, for me, so I run a blog called class Nine Hundred ndycom and if you look at that, it's all there's a lot of waterway history, and it really started with my interest in the Central Canal that goes through Marion County as well as north and south of the city, and that kind of spread into the White River, Fall Creek, Pogues Run, all these waterways that have impacted Indianapolis, and... I probably do too much research on those and talk about them too much, but it's very—it's fascinating work.
4: I was hired by the White River Vision Plan to do more sort of land context around all of the anchors of the river, so they had a great foundation for the the vision plan that they were working on for years. And I think what happened was they realized we need some more site-specific research to get people excited about different anchors and towns and settlements in. The plan was to do tours and add content to the website when they did the version 2 kickoff. So I worked on that. And uh, since then, I've been working with the Riverside Park Promenade Redevelopment to do Riverside Park and White River research.
1: Can you explain what you mean by an anchor?
4: Yeah, so there's certain areas uh, within the reaches of the river that we've divided into seven sections. It's about 58 miles of the river between Marion County and Hamilton County. And of course, the river extends both directions, but the idea was how do we bring all of these different units of government, tourism groups, advocacy groups together to leverage this asset in a better way than we have before. So if we work together, we can um, get larger grants, do bigger cleanups, and uh, redevelop in an equitable way.
2: Throughout this podcast production, we've learned a lot of ways that water gets used and a lot of ways that you know, our use has changed over time. What are some of the ways that the White River and the development of it has been you know, connected to the history of the development of people living here?
3: Well, so in central Indiana, when the state first became a state, there was nothing here. And the capital was down in Corydon. Under the Indiana Constitution, it had to be moved um, within a couple of years of, I think it was 1825. And the goal was to find a location in the center of the state. And one of the things that they were looking for was a navigable stream which to build upon and a uh, kind of in the political center of the state. So that kind of led to Indianapolis being focused along the White River. And from there, I mean, Indianapolis was founded early 1820s and things just kind of expanded. There were already a few settlements present, especially Native American settlements had already recognized the importance of the river. But for Euro-American settlers, once Indianapolis was founded, that really started the kind of expansion, the settlement along its banks.
2: Okay, so the river was like a pretty crucial point of developing Indianapolis
3: in the first place, right? Absolutely, I mean, if you look around other like uh, Fort Wayne, Columbus, Ohio, Um, South Bend, Terre Haute, all these cities were based off on rivers, you know, not only for the potential commerce, but, you know, uh, water source, things like that.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned something about transportation, like using the river as transportation.
3: Yeah, I think uh, I think the founders of our state and our city thought that the White River was gonna be far better for commercial uses than it yeah. actually was. <laughs> um, everybody wanted to be on a navigable river because that meant nobody could, an adjacent property owner couldn't come in and try to like block the river or use it for their own purposes. So there were all sorts of attempts to use the river for commerce that weren't really successful. One thing that was successful was one-way transport during flooded seasons where you could send flat boats downriver because you didn't have to, you know, water was high and you could just go straight down, but that was a one-way trip.
2: Why was it not successful? You know, what made it not
3: work? It's a shallow river, even, I mean, it is today. I mean, you go out there right now, we were in the middle of a dry period and I could walk across the river in numerous spots, but even then there were a lot of snags, a lot of sandbars, just very, very shallow areas, which made navigation extremely, extremely difficult.
4: Going back a little bit, can you talk about
1: some of the earlier history of the
4: river? So when you think about the glaciers moving across the continent, look at Indiana and sort of the topography of Indiana. It's very flat in northern Indiana. And then in central Indiana, we start to see a couple hills. We'll call them hills. And then, you know, once we cross like 465, if you're going down to Bloomington, you start to see hills. So part of that glacial movement from 20,000 to 17,000 years ago is related to the rivers and how they meander through this area. So if you look at like Southwest Way Park, for example, where you have that significant hill is called a glacial kame, a K-A-M-E. So that's where all the stuff, all the sediment that the glacier is taking. And then it just kind of stops as it's melting. And it's like, this is where we live now, right? So that's why you have that, that hill at Southwest Way Park. I like to think of water as an architect Water is a city planner and water is a sociologist. So when I say water is an architect, what I mean is it was shaping and creating forms and changing forms as the river kind of meanders over time. Yeah,
2: that's a really cool way to look at it. And, and on that note of just architecture, like thinking about it that way, my background's in landscape architecture and in design school, I remember this maxim of the professors would say, we turned our backs on the river. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? And is that something that we did in Indianapolis? Did we turn our back on the White River?
4: Absolutely, we did. If you look particularly in the area where the White River State Park is today, for about 100 years, you can see in the old historic fire insurance maps and aerial maps, you can see this industrial campus, really. So there were things like like a slaughterhouse and paper mills and a canning factory, and they're essentially using the White River as a garbage disposal. You know, things change over time, manufacturing, jobs, you know, uh, certain jobs move out to the exurbs or rural areas. Some leave the Rust Belt in the Midwest for the Sun Belt in the South. There's all these changes in our economy and manufacturing, and that led to the opportunity to redevelop that area. But for a good century there, we had used it for Getting rid of stuff we didn't want, byproducts and manufacturing.
3: You know, looking back through history, that, you know, even like into the 1800s, there were concerns about pollution. I just did some research on a town of Rocky Ripple. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that. It's northwest of Butler, a little community in the bend of the river. The town was founded in 1927. And within a couple of years of that, you, there's all these complaints about pollution because there was a city. Um, a sewer outlet at 56th Street, just north of there, that was dumping pollution into the river. You know, they're complaining about how they couldn't use the water to bathe, their well water smelled. So, even that early, and even goes even farther back into the uh, 1800s.
4: I have articles queued up to get people interested in primary sources, since that's my main goal in life as an archivist. Uh, So I think people have this conception that we don't really start thinking about pollution until the 20th century, and that's just not true. So the earliest discussion I have found in the papers on water quality is in 1864, and they're talking about the idea of adding filtration to our water to make it drinkable. My favorite editorial is from 1881 from the Indianapolis News, and I'm just going to read one section of it that I think really sums up that initial conversation. So it's titled, The Water Supply of the City. As a new source of water supply for the city is contemplated, would it not be well for the citizens of Indianapolis to determine in advance of any contractor agreement whether or not water taken from White River or Fall Creek at any point is not objectionable we can take into consideration how small amount of sewerage it takes to infect a stream for miles along its course. That drainage from villages, barnyards, stables, pig pens, and feeding grounds for stock, as well as the washings from manured lands, tend to render water unfit for use. We have only to travel along White River and note the amount of filth that flows and is washed into it to decide at once that no people can be healthy who use water from it. 1881. Yeah. yeah, they were talking about
2: non-point source pollution <laughs> back
3: then. Well, and you said there was a mention in there about mile a little bit of sewage could pollute it for miles. Yeah. And there's examples in the late 1800s of uh, Noblesville, the Strawboard mm-hmm. Works, um, mm-hmm. just southwest of town that... In 1896, there was a big break in the, they had a, they have settling ponds where all this pollution was in there. And there was a storm or a break in the levee and it just polluted everything all the way down to Broad Ribble. But is
1: that quote from Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We've been worried about pollution forever. Well,
2: and even, I'm just thinking of an interview we did with Thomas Duszynski. Like, I mean, even the Romans were like, maybe we don't, bathe with the same water we drink. Like maybe we have a system <laughs> where the dirty water goes and the clean water goes.
3: Absolutely. Well, and in, in, in this 1896 example, people, there was a lot of discussion about where the city was getting its water from. And there was some confusion about that Indianapolis is actually drinking water from the White River, which at that time, it was, that was not the main source. But these, a lot of people in the city got very upset because there were reports about water seeping into the water company galleries down at Riverside Station. Down close to downtown. And it wasn't intentional. It was just seeping through the banks. We weren't using the canal for water at the time, but people were very much up in arms because they realized the White River was not exactly the cleanest thing, and we're potentially using that for water.
1: Can we talk a little bit about the canal? We've focused a lot on on the White River, (laughs) but if we can learn a little bit about the Central Canal, that would be Sure.
3: Sure. Yeah. So the Central Canal, I think most people know through downtown, and then also through Broad Ripple, from Broad Ripple down to uh, Fall Creek. And that's the original, I mean, that's what it looked like when it was first constructed. Um, Downtown has been heavily reconstructed, but really the canal would would not have been built through Indianapolis if not for the river. Um, The canal, there's sections of the canal all the way north of Anderson, all the way down towards almost Martinsville. In fact, Jordan and I explored a section just west of Anderson earlier this spring, which was right on the canal, or right on the river. I mean, the river was literally like 30 feet away, but the canal was fed through the water or th- fed through the water of the White River because of its lack of navigability. The canal was meant to be a avenue of commerce. And unfortunately that, well, we were a little behind the times on that and corruption and poor planning resulted in the entire system collapsing, but it could have been a grand system if only we thought of it about 10, 15 years earlier.
4: I also think your, your labor and immigrant history related to the canal is fascinating. And that's that work that you've done, I often refer to because I don't really do people history. I do building history.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, immigrants, I mean, the, uh, the Irish were the main source of, uh, of labor at the time. I mean, they'd been moving steadily westward with the very ex- expansion of uh, public works. And it was almost entirely an Irish workforce that built the canal system here in Indiana and in other states, too. So,
1: Can we talk a little bit about water in Indianapolis, um, particularly around segregation, redlining, those sorts of things?
4: So when I said earlier, I think of water as a sociologist or social worker, that's how I kind of frame this tension with inequity, with pollution, with segregation. There's an interesting tension between the water is both this place of recreation and leisure for some, but then it's also a place of pollution and segregation for others. And it operates in both capacities all the time, but also in like a very site-specific way. So my research has really looked at spatial equity or how There's layers and patterns of disinvestment in particular neighborhoods based on federal, state, municipal policies over time. And when you look at things like redlining, for example, so this idea that banks and mortgages were, mortgage lenders were acting in a discriminatory pattern to deny mortgage loans to areas, neighborhoods, typically older urban core neighborhoods, and inhabitants tended to be either black households, immigrant households, low-income laborers. So you see areas of the city be redlined, AKA uh, it's uh, colored red on a map. So red is hazardous, yellow is definitely declining, blue equals uh, still desirable and green is best. And so you see these patterns that we're still living with today where the northern and eastern kind of corridors of the city are valued higher than other parts of the city. And what was so interesting with White River and the floodplains is when you look at the forms that they use to evaluate these areas and, like, make the map, in the Broad Ripple area, it's redlined for being a floodplain. But near the Riverside area, it's also a floodplain, but it's redlined for black inhabitants. So you can see this racialized you know, this discrimination in our housing patterns, and that's coming from the federal level. And then you also see things related to segregation where we exist on a color line and a pollution line. So where housing is accessible to lower-income minority households, immigrant households, tend to be in areas that are determined less desirable, right, to white affluent families. Uh, So you see near, where I was talking about earlier, with the industrial area just north of that, that's where a lot of these households were living. So they're already more uh, prone to be exposed to these hazards and these toxins compared to white affluent households.
2: A lot of what you're saying just kind of corroborates some of what we've been hearing from really a lot of our guests, honestly. And, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about water coming into this, but I had my suspicions <laughs> that maybe it wasn't all fair and equal access to the river. Could you go uh, into detail on some more policies related to segregation and just discrimination?
4: Yeah, in the 1950s, the federal government passes the Highway Act, and it takes a little while to get kind of through our state government, but what NDOT decides is they put, they pick this route for the highway 6570, 65 loop, and we have other harm related to the river and the highways beyond just displacement of homes and people and their businesses, their schools and their churches. I think one of the most shocking examples is where I-65 crosses over about 38th Street in the Riverside Park area just to the north. They take out Lake Sullivan, which was this incredible hub for, for birds that thrived in water habitats. So they knew at the time that White River was polluted and and it wasn't good for the birds. So they create this this man-made lake that's free of pollution. It's a great place for waterfowl. And then they drive the highway through it and destroy most of that. So that's just like one example, kind of on a local municipal level, looking at some of the choices the Parks Department and the Board of Park Commissioners have have made over the years. There's a lot of racist decisions that have—we're still grappling with these impacts today. I think uh, one story that's come out really in recent years is what happened with Belmont Beach, just so the south of Riverside, thinking about this area that gets uh, selected in the 1930s to be a segregated beach. You know, the Parks Commissioners were like, black residents get Douglas Park. That's what you get. And the the white families have all these other options. So after a lot of pushback, they create Belmont Beach. Well, it's only, you know, it's not even a mile from really that industrial hub downtown. So you're still concerned about toxic pollution and and things in the water. So after like seven years, they have to close the beach because it's, there's issues with the water quality and also the park just simply doesn't invest in basic maintenance for the the beach. And we're still living with that today.
2: So I guess this kind of answers that question, but do we still as a people, follow these sorts of patterns now.
4: I would say yes, but with a with a, a um, asterisk there. I do think we have more planners and advocates who are thinking about equity and justice and. As long as they keep getting a seat at the table, we can better plan for the future. And part of my job is to kind of show the receipts and history so we can back it up and better um, just sort of right the wrongs. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I look at it is that most people probably aren't
2: aware of the things that have been put in place. And we're kind of just in autopilot, carrying out the systems that are before And we don't even know why they were put up that way or who made them or why they made them. And so I don't think there's like a malicious intent anymore, but it's just that we've been doing this this way for hundreds of years.
4: And water history is really hard to do. And just if you want to get involved today, it can be very jargony. The language can be inaccessible. It's hard to know where to start. So I think that's... A big problem. The way I try to frame it is that, and not to sound like a hippie, but like, you know, the rivers are all connected, right? Like what the strawtown farmer puts in their soil impacts the kids in Riverside, right? So I think of rivers as both a relationship and also an opportunity to problem solve. And I think we have a lot of creative problem solvers in this city and county that are trying their best.
1: What do you think we've learned from the river's history?
3: I think we have to treat the w- river well and respect the river because as we've seen, if we uh, pollute the river, it's going to impact you know, not only how we live, um, but you know, other animal life as well. Um, we do get 60% of our water from the river. I mean, that's what the canal's for. And then also, you know, just the, the pollution side of things. And then also the power of the river. I mean, as you're seeing more and more development along the river, it's, you know, when, when it rains, and especially as you know, it's become more urbanized, there's less place for the water to go except in the river. And then, as we've seen, uh, 1913 probably the most, or is the best example. The river can certainly come out of its banks and really take out chunks of the city. And 1913 was a big one. There were other ones too. I mean, 1904 was, was a big one as well, where it just absolutely you know, devastated sections of the city course, that then led to a flood control program, which I think has also impacted the neighborhoods along the way. I mean, when you start building up levees and those structures, that can certainly impact the neighborhoods as well.
4: Yeah. And it's a, it's a way to sort of democratize space, right? We're all connected. And what happens here impacts south of us all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico And so it's, I think it's a teaching tool as well for children. My entire life, I've lived in five places in Marion County, and I've always been within like a mile of White River. My parents never took me. Like, I didn't even know it existed. I'm the furthest away from it now, but I'm the most in love with it, I guess, that I've ever been because now I understand how it's all connected. And it's like a place of history and resiliency. And we can... Do a little bit of everything we can do more recreation and we can do economic development and we can add equitable you know business and housing opportunities it can be a little bit of everything for everyone
1: what's the future of the river and where do we go from here
3: i think it, the future has got to be a more friendly relationship with the river as we've already said you know turn your back on the river people have done that for years um i still get that from people in my neighborhood where it's like oh you you're on the river oh i don't, don't want to go down there No, you should, you should explore it. But especially through downtown where we have this massive, you know, we have this river which goes right through downtown, we're not utilizing it. I mean, people drive over it, you know, thousands of people drive over it every day and probably don't even get a second thought. People run along its banks and listening to a podcast don't even take a look at it or try to explore it. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to not only learn to keep it clean, learn to respect it, but also learn how to use it better, not only for recreation, but you know, other, other ways
5: as well.
4: One of my favorite historic documents, in the 1970s, they're thinking about how to redevelop what becomes the state park. And there's all of these ideas. They just don't have the money to actually implement in the 1980s. But there's these wonderful drawings in the evans Woland collection. And it, you see like a boardwalk and you see like an amusement park right on the water and like giant swan boats, which we kind of have with those swan paddle boats now. <laughs> yeah. um, but this idea of like a river walk and a boardwalk and ways to integrate, you know, tourism and downtown resident experience. And, you know, if you work downtown and just want to like, take a walk on the river, like we can keep building on what we have. And I, I do get kind of tickled when I think about how we recycle ideas that maybe we have forgotten or, you know, there's new architects and planners running the show now. So like we're recycling a lot of great ideas that can be implemented in different sections of the river. So everyone gets a little a little taste of it. And I, I want to quote a 1907 article on leisure and recreation because I do think it kind of sums up what we want to experience with cleaning up the river and making it safe today. Uh, so this article is about country walking and just leisure activities on the river. Everyone who is not possessed of an automobile or carriage walks on Sunday. The bypaths of the river, creeks and canal are thronged on Sunday afternoons with hikers. They are out to see how nature is getting along and to drink in the pure fresh air of the country. No city in the country has it on Indianapolis for beautiful suburban scenery. I have wandered up and down every stream around here and there is something new to be seen every time I go back. I love that. Wow. It's beautiful. it's beautiful. That is a
2: really nice book. Is that like around the time of the City Beautiful movement? Are those two connected at
4: all? You got it. Yeah. So this article comes out in 1907. And when we think about the City Beautiful movement, that's a, sort of an 1890s to 19-teens civic ideology to you know beautify and celebrate cities and public spaces, thinking about infrastructure, our favorite thing to talk about, you know, bridges, things like that. And uh, I do think this article references or reflects that movement, but it also reflects a little bit of that early suburbanization and how we kind of have this like romanticized feeling about some of these areas that haven't been fully developed yet as the city's growing and expanding over time.
3: Well, and it shows that back then people were appreciating the river and the waterways. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they were getting out, they're riding their bikes, they were hiking along the waterways, using them. And we've fallen away from that. So hopefully here in the future, we can get back to the sentiments expressed in what, 1907?
1: Mm-hmm. We've talked about such serious issues with segregation and redlining and horrible pollution and inequities, really severe inequities. Do you think we are paying enough attention to that past to be able to change it?
3: I think that we're starting to. I think there's a lot more to be done. I mean, there's been some great work done um, about the river. Uh, Jordan's done some great research and some great presentations along those lines. But, you know, it's gonna be a process. And I think we're just at the uh, starting line of that process.
4: I think it's really hard when the free market's gonna do what the free market does without intervention. And when you're talking about waterways, you have like multiple units of municipal government and state and things aren't always on the um, same page. Everyone's not communicating with each other. Uh, so that's really tricky, particularly when you have different levels of kind of prioritizing what needs to be done and, and for whom, you know, that's always the question is who benefits from, from what. Um, so I think as long as we keep pushing for an equity and justice lens, we'll be better off.
1: If people are interested in learning more about our local water, about river history, where can
4: they do that? Ed's blog is a good first place. <laughs>
3: well, thank you, Jordan. Um, yeah, I've got quite a bit on my blog about the White River, but also I would point out I think it's uh, the Indianapolis Public Library and their digital collections has a collection by the Waterworks or the water company. There's a lot about the river in that. I think do isn't there some stuff also at, that you handle at IHS?
4: Yeah, in the Indianapolis Bicentennial Collection at the Indiana Historical Society, we had a pretty significant waterworks collection that we digitized. One of my favorite components of that collection, John Diggs was a water company chemist, an engineer, and in the 19-teens, he went out on a boat in White River in the industrial area and took pictures to actually show the pollution and to really visualize it, and he made this scrapbook and it's like, you know, debris from the slaughterhouse, blood from the slaughterhouse, tomato peelings from the cannery, and. This might be sassy to say, but I think this might be the first visual like archival docu- documentation we have of local water pollution and that environmental justice question. It's a fascinating scrapbook. So I'd highly recommend that. And then for a book, because i got to be a librarian and archivist, for a book reference, um, Dr. Paul Mullins and Dr. Sue Hyatt from IUPUI along with Kyle Huskins, they wrote a book or a chapter in the book, *Archaeologies of Violence and Privilege, and their chapter's called Race in the Water, Swimming, Sewers, and Structural Violence in Africa, African-America, and it's really about Riverside, Belmont Beach, the west side, pollution, and I think that's a really great starting point if you want to look for something in your local library.
0: Next, Rick Cochram owns and manages Capital Assets, LLC, a government affairs consulting firm. He currently serves on the board of Friends of the White River and as the board president for the Indiana Wildlife Federation. He is a member of the Indiana Department of Natural Resources Foundation Board of Directors and a former member of the Indiana DNR Commission. Rick also has a beautiful view from his back porch of the White River in Indianapolis. He shares with us what is unique about the spirit of riverside communities.
5: My name is Rick Cochran. Uh, by profession, I've, I'm a lobbyist. And um, I started out in that, well, I actually started my career uh, running a YMCA down in Vincennes, and I moved up here and became an intern with an organization and worked for them. And and right now, I've got my own firm and multiple clients, but uh, my passion has always been outdoor issues. I'm on the board of Friends of the White River, uh, chairman of the board of the Indiana Wildlife Federation, I've done a lot of uh, advocacy on clean energy and environmental issues and wildlife habitat and such. My passion is outdoors.
1: Well, today we are here talking about community at the shoreline, how people interact with the water and also interact with each other when you're at the water. Part of the reason why we're talking to you is because you're a Riverside homeowner. Can you tell us more of the ways that you're involved with Indiana's Waters?
5: I grew up. In Vincennes, in a large family, I have 10 siblings, and the Wabash River was like three blocks away. And so if you had a bicycle and a BB gun or a fishing rod, you had some independence. And so I just always enjoyed that and fond. And 20 years ago, I decided to see what was available on the river and found this house and uh, moved here and have never looked back. Uh, the, The neighbors are wonderful in a micro sense the neighborhood is very close and in a macro sense river people in general it's a lineal community so one of my observations is it doesn't have the political clout of like a lake owners association because they're all clustered in one spot you know our community runs for miles and i've met some very very interesting people over the years and still do the river tends to draw an eclectic nature of people. And I'm not sure why I have some theories because rivers themselves are pretty dynamic. No two seasons are the same, no two days are the same. When you've got water molecules flowing, it changes constantly. Every time I get my boat out in the spring and start patrolling the river, I notice something's changed. Logs moved, rocks moved. Uh, sandbar created. Just the currents over the winter changed, changed
2: the river. So you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but what are some other things that are special
5: about living in a waterside community, you know, being next to the river? Part of the attractiveness f- from a community standpoint is the uh, variety of people. And I'm not sure which comes first, the variety of housing, because if you drive along the river, you'll notice there are small bungalows next to very large expensive homes. I don't know if decades ago the river wasn't uh, zoned. And so if you just get a piece of land on the river, you put up what you wanted. I do know that probably a hundred years ago, if you talk to people and read the history, it was kind of the playground of uh, the rich from the city. They could come out for the weekend. And so there's some historic homes that go back that far. But what you'll find on the river is you know, a physician living next door to a plumber, who's next door to an attorney, who's next door to an electrician, and their commonality is the love of the river. And so you get a lot of that interaction on the river.
1: Is it affordable for people to be able to live on the river?
5: It was. I think it's changing pretty dramatically because what what we're seeing now is some of the smaller homes that I mentioned. Uh, when they sell, a lot of them are getting taken down and newer homes uh, being built. That's not a surprise uh, as, as the river's gradually getting cleaner. And I say gradually because it's not nearly at the pace that I would hope it to be. Uh, it's getting a lot of notoriety with grants and, and activities. Friends of the White River, the White River Alliance, other organizations that promote the river, the media has given it more attention and, and it was kind of the backyard of the city for, for decades and people are starting to see it for the resource that it is. And I think that's attracting uh, homeowners and buyers and housing prices have gone up in the last 20 years.
1: One of the things you talked about was how dynamic the river is and how dynamic the neighborhood is. Do you think there's a way to preserve that and make it accessible for people as things are shifting?
5: One of the challenges for all of us is to keep access to public lands and public waterways. I mentioned uh, before we started, uh, I'm chairman of the board of the Indiana Wildlife Federation, and that's one of our uh, primary objectives is just try to keep access to public lands and the thing that's fascinating about that—that's that's an American concept. We were the first country just to say we're going to set aside land for everybody. Well, you know, our, most of our ancestors came from Europe uh, early on, and and it was the king's land or the queen's land, and and or it was somebody in royalty that owned the land, but it wasn't the common people. And so, the neat thing about the American concept and creation of the national park system and led to state parks is public access. So we've got to be careful to be able to provide that. There are access points for canoes and paddlers along the river, Broad Ripple Park is popular There are a lot of parks in Hamilton County, and I think they're going to be more probably developed. I'm going to assume that Morgan County is going to be doing stuff. Morgan County is going to benefit greatly from the the tunnel that's going to be cleaning up the stormwater. It's not going to do much for here because that's water going below the city, but it's going to be a lot cleaner. And so I think you're going to see more interest in that. But um, I just fished yesterday afternoon down at Holiday Park, just went in and waited for a little bit to fly fish. And there were a lot of families hiking splashing, throwing rocks in the river, just wading in the river, and uh, that was fun to see.
2: In your experience, does living near the river um, encourage better stewardship or more advocacy for it?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see it. If the weed growth is out of control, out out of line, it's probably a nutrient load upstream. We watch for invasive species. Uh, the people on the river, the White River Yacht Club created a foundation and they raise money to try to address those issues. Explosion of weed growth or algae, dealing with invasive species and such. And so there's, there's a passion for people to want to, to want to keep it clean. Believe it or not, there are people that water ski in the river, in this section a lot. In fact, there's a group of guys that barefoot ski a lot of mornings, which is pretty impressive.
1: You've talked a little bit about the White River Yacht Club. Can you tell us more about what that is and how you're involved with it?
5: Well, it's a, it's a club uh, here on the river above the Broad Ripple Dam. So the, 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 the Broad Ripple Dam creates a, about a three-mile-long pool that allows for pontoon boats and ski boats and other types of boats. You get further upstream or below the dam, it's, the, the river's more shallow and there's a lot more uh, rocks and riffles and such. But in this section, there's enough for uh, pontoon boating and such. And so the club is above the dam uh, in Broad Ripple and has several hundred members. It has a waiting list because it's uh, very popular. Uh, It's a fun place to sit out and have uh, lunch or dinner. There's a lot of entertainment there, uh, live music, um, events such as that, uh, trivia night. So like any kind of social organization. But they also are very uh, protective of the river and keep an eye out for things that might boil the quality of life. It's not unusual for the club to be engaged in like a zoning issue if they think it's going to be detrimental to the river cause uh, runoff or or such and so they, they will um, participate in something such as that and they organize uh, cleanups and things as does the White River Alliance and Friends of the White River. So there are a lot of people that love the river and the members of the Yacht Club. They don't all live on the river. There's some of them that live around town and different parts of town, but they, they, they want to come and enjoy the, the fellowship there. It's a, it's a fun place to hang out.
1: When I hear Yacht Club, I think real fancy and for only rich people. Is that true?
5: <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I don't think there's a yacht between here and Lake Michigan. To answer your question, there's all kinds of boats, but the river's not deep, and so you don't want anything with a a big draft on it. Now, we do have a big paddle wheeler on the river Mm -hmm. that'll hold, uh, I think, up to 60 people, um, and it's rented for parties and such, but uh, the way it's designed and built, it's a shallow draft, and uh, we had, unfortunately, our dear friend, John Hughes uh, passed away, had a tiki barge, which was kind of a 20 by 20 foot party barge boat that cruised up and down the river, which was fun to hang out on.
1: Well, we've talked a lot about the positive aspects of living near waterways. Can you talk a little bit about the risks of living near the river?
5: Well, you've you've got to uh, pay attention to water levels. I'm on a high bank, so I don't worry about flooding, but I've got to keep an eye on my dock and my boat. A lot of us that are in the current have to remove our docks for the winter and the club does that. There's a day where just everybody volunteers to tow docks down and we put them in storage and we'll do that sometime in the next few weeks and then put them back in in the spring. Other people, depending on where you live on the river, if you're out of the current and you've got the properly designed dock, you can leave it in year round. So that's an issue. Is is um, you know, uh, uh, debris, limbs, uh, things such as that coming down the river. The the flooding, if you're in a floodplain, you've gotta be prepared to move furniture or vehicles or something. Uh, every home is a little bit different. The homes in these sections, this probably six or seven homes right here are out of the floodplain, so that's not a problem. In fact, a couple of them have basements, which is interesting. But. Some other parts of the river people have to be prepared and ready to, to sandbag or move furniture or not be able to use the property for a while.
1: With climate change and the river changing, how are you looking to the future and preparing for both positive and negative aspects of change?
5: Part of the question I struggle with, uh, I'm not sure there's much positive about climate change, but uh, it's here. It's been predicted for decades. Uh, Scientists said 30 years ago the most expensive thing you can do about climate is nothing, and here we are. Just saw an article in the paper this morning about so much air pollution from Western fires, and the maps showed how much more intense and frequent they are over the last several years. We read regularly about massive amounts of rainfall, and so I think that's inevitable that we're gonna not be spared and we're gonna be hit like Eastern Kentucky was a a few weeks ago. Uh, You get an eight, nine, 10, 12 inch rain event and all bets are off because the river's just gonna swell so fast. It's amazing uh, just a three or four inch rain, which is used to be a big rain. uh, The river can pop up several feet just in a matter of hours. I think that's the primary concern. Other impacts of the, the river was less likely to freeze i've heard stories from people that grew up here how the river would freeze they could skate on it Mm -hmm. they could walk on it they could drive on it i think in my 20 years i've only seen one one or two times where the river's actually frozen Uh, i suspect that we're not going to see much of that anymore but we're going to have more precipitation and it's going to come in more intense short periods and we've all got to be prepared for that.
2: One thing we haven't talked about yet uh, that we just realized is wildlife, and you mentioned the Indiana Wildlife Federation, so I'm sure you have some interesting insights on the
5: the unique wildlife along the river. Absolutely, it's amazing (laughs) what you can see if you just pay attention and sit outside for a little bit. We've got a family of eagles every spring that are upriver, but they cruise the river, especially If um, we see them in the winter, I said the river doesn't freeze over. There are parts of the river that will ice up the slower currents. But here, uh, because the water's moving pretty well, it's one of the last places to uh, get uh, any kind of ice cover. So the eagles like to hang around here. We see a lot of osprey, which is another uh, fascinating uh, bird of prey, herons, muskrat, beaver. So we've just uh, a variety of wildlife, uh, deer, come down to the river, we know there are coyote around, they're pretty elusive, but we know they're here. Raccoons, possums, uh, a lot of critters, every form of life needs water and we all share the river. One of the things that, we, that I personally like about the river is my fishing opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so that's a measurement of the quality. I think most of the people in the city, older people remember 25 years ago or so there was a Chemical spill upriver, and there was a major fish die-off, and I think that might have been the catalyst that people stopped and went, "Whoa, what are we doing? This can't be our dumping ground anymore." Very clearly remember uh, Governor O'Bannon swinging into action and 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 trying to uh, uh, enforce uh, water cleaning up, and a lot of organizations engaged in and not just cleaning up the river, but providing more access, getting people to pay attention to things to do on the river, and get more families to recognize this asset and this resource that that we have.
0: The value of water goes far beyond what comes out of our tap, what we use to grow our food, or what gets consumed for electricity. Water is often at the center of what it means to be part of a community. Join us this season as we talk more about water and the many lives that are connected to it. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us in this conversation about water. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.